0: Welcome to Catholic Living, a podcast that seeks to be a user's guide to the Catholic faith, where we boldly ask, what if this stuff is all true? How then should we live? This is brought to you by Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. I'm Tom Hoops. I'm writer-in-residence here at the college, and you can read what I write at alatea.org or ExCorde.org. Today I want to talk more about the mistakes movies make. So if you think about it, There's literally one of the Ten Commandments is devoted to media. Make no graven image of anything in heaven or below. And there's a reason for that. We can look and feel superior to people who would bow down in front of a golden bull and be all excited about how fancy and wonderful this thing was. But back then, that was a huge deal. There weren't statues everywhere. There weren't images everywhere. And to see this image, this shiny image of virility and power was a big deal. And people, when they see an image like that, it awakens in them the desire to admire that thing. So my mom tells me the story of how Peter Pan was introduced into England. I guess Peter Pan started as a stage play before it was written into a novel version it used some kind of rudimentary, but apparently fairly effective special effects to cause Peter Pan to fly on stage, which blew the minds of uh, British kids in the countryside. And what these kids started to do is Peter Pan, the play originally taught them that in order to fly, you have to believe you could fly. And so people were, apparently kids were jumping off barns. This is according to my mom. I haven't independently verified this. In fact, I've tried and failed, but she said it with much conviction <laughs> and I can and I think it's, it refers to a true principle. So these kids would jump off their barns really, really believing they could fly and they didn't fly. So, and it became such a problem that they had to introduce the plot device of pixie dust into the movie. So you, Believing you can fly is not enough. You also have to have magical pixie dust from a fairy. And that eliminated the um, the attempts to jump off barns. And technology still has the same effect on us. I was going to tell a story. I remember going to Star Wars when I was young. So I was eight years old when Star Wars came out, or about to turn eight, somewhere in there. And I went to Star Wars, and it was unlike anything anybody who'd ever seen before. It was certainly unlike anything... I'd ever seen before. And sitting in the theater was just this overwhelming experience of having opened the door to Narnia or having to having looked into a world that you didn't even know was possible. And now you're seeing it move and surround you. You know, the theaters, as I mentioned last time, have this uh, effect on you where everything's blackened out and your ears are filled with the sound and your eyes are filled with the visions. And it really takes you to another place. And Star Wars certainly did that for me. And I remember walking out into the sunlight of Tucson, Arizona and thinking how odd the world was and how ordinary and plain compared to what I just experienced. And then sitting in the back of the car and uh, shooting the cars that went by me as if, as if I was Luke Skywalker or Han Solo in, in the Millennium Falcon. So technology has this effect on people who are little kids. It has this effect on people who are older. The movie, when the movie Avatar came out, I share with my students all these remarkable quotes that were collected uh, by a magazine, by Time Magazine, and by other news reports of people who just were depressed after that movie because they saw this shiny, beautiful world, and then they came back out into the ordinary world. And it wasn't it didn't live up to what they'd seen in the film. I would say more than simply imitating movies on a personal level, movies truly transform culture. And the reason they do this, Alastair McIntyre is a philosopher who's at Notre Dame currently. He's had a long and storied career. I just saw him speak last fall. Uh, he's toward the end of his career now. He's past where most careers would have ended. Alistair McIntyre said, man is a storytelling animal. And he said, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part? So if you are a church-going person, the story of which you are a part has to do with God and his message to you and his plan for you. If you are an activist movement of some kind that probably tells you a story about your life that you then uh, fulfill. But movies for the last uh, hundred years have told us who we are, and it's really movies have really shaped the culture. I mean just a couple of very kind of benign um, or maybe not so benign examples. Apparently, uh, women used to have very few fashion choices in their closets, they would have their Sunday dress, they would have their workaday dress, and then they'd have their slightly dressy dress. They didn't have a whole lot of different options because there was no need to until movies of the 1940s and 1950s showed these actresses and uh, always in very stylish clothes, and the whole fashion industry was born. The 1960s, you had people imitating Audrey Hepburn and uh, James Dean and their whole look and style and attitude toward life. The 1970s, there were, if you look at 1970s movies, they're always kind of depressing. There's always uh, these long rambling stories with sad endings. And in the 1970s, the United States has this sort of um, reputation of being a malaise to use the words of Jimmy Carter, of people who weren't sure what their purpose was. 1980s, that changed. Movies came along like Star Wars, and then Rocky showing these underdogs who were winning over more powerful people than them. Raiders of the Lost Ark. You had all these movies, and suddenly you had in the 80s this rebirth of American spirit, American American triumphalism. It's funny because the... um, Hollywood always has claimed we are not creating morals. We're simply following the morals of the time. Very insistent on this. And in most kind of film class books that you read also kind of parrot this particular take. But then in the 1990s, when seatbelts first began to be a craze, Hollywood executives were bragging that uh, Danny Glover and Mel Gibson buckled their seatbelts in the lethal weapon movies. And showing how that caused people to start buckling their seatbelts. In the 2000s, in the 21st century, I think the case could be made that Hollywood has shaped culture a great deal. My wife and I, whenever we'd go to the theater, we were always astonished to see all these end-of-the-world movies, World War Z, and then, you you know, the Hunger Games series is kind of an apocalyptic, end-of-the-world type of thing, or a dystopian thing at any rate. Quiet Place is a post-disaster world. Uh, and lo and behold, when a pandemic came along, people had a very strong reaction to it. I've spoken about the coronavirus on the podcast before, so I, I'm not really strongly one way or the other in the sort of debate over whether the disease was worse than the cure, or if the cure was worse than, worse than the disease. But I do think that we were ready to react strongly to a pandemic because of the movies we'd watched. Even more telling, I think, is what happened in the summer of 2020. And if you look back at movies like V for Vendetta, which is literally set in 2020 about uh, sort of anarchists taking the streets of London in Guy Fox masks, or Joker, which is about people rioting against the rich that came out uh, the fall before 2020. I think it was a 2019 movie. You saw the culture play out the narratives that we were told in those movies. I don't think there's a direct one-to-one correspondence in these things, but I do think these movies clear the way and create the narratives that we then live out in real life. So it's very important for movies to say true things about the human person. And it's very important that movies point to a true narrative about our relationship with God. The problem is that movies often make mistakes about God, the human person, love. I want to start with God and kind of make the point that in many movies, religious people aren't normal. Uh, Michael Medved who wrote um, Hollywood versus America back in the 20th century, 1990s I guess, uh, made the point that more Americans Go to church every Sunday, then watch the Super Bowl every year. Uh, and I just double check the numbers, and you know, at least if you go by self-reporting, this year 100 million people watch the Super Bowl. Last year was 111 million, and if you look at the self-reporting, it's about 132 million Americans who go to uh, church every week or to worship services of some kind. But movies still act like religious people aren't normal. I think this comes from the fact that many people in ho- Hollywood aren't religious and they don't seem to understand what religious people are all about. In fact, they seem to think that religious people are just you know, odd people who believe strange things and wanna ruin other people's social lives. So they often portray religious people as creepy or scary. <laughs> You know, often this is a scene of commission, like the, um, if you think of classic movies like Fields of Dreams and Shawshank Redemption, Shawshank Redemption has a warden who is motivated somehow by the Bible to be particularly sinister and wicked. And uh, Field of Dreams has these evangelical Christians who are all about banning books. Um, So those are, you go out of your way to add a Christian bad guy element to your movie, or, uh, you know, almost any Stephen King movie will do this, like Carrie... Um, But then there's also sins of omission, like Hidden Figures is a movie where people get together and pray before a meal, and when you see it, you think, oh my gosh, people do this all the time. Why am I only seeing it in a movie so rarely? Sometimes religious scenes are simply erased from movies. The film Gladiator, which has a scene that was cut out where Russell Crowe looks out into the arena and he sees a Christian woman and her child who are kneeling in prayer about to get eaten by lions. That one may, I mean, the, the, the special effects look like they may have caused that particular scene to not work out. So they may have an excuse there. But then Road to Perdition with Tom Hanks. Uh, I noticed when that movie is a mafia movie about the Tom Hanks character who leaves the mafia with his son. And I noticed the reviews often said that the story lacked a center that there was never, the main character was never given any motivation for leaving the mafia. Suddenly he just left with his child. And that the movie suffered from you not knowing why. Well, my gosh, in the very center of the movie, the kind of the midpoint, turning point of the movie, uh, there was a scene where Tom Hanks goes into a church with his son. And you see him show his son to a pew then you see him walk to the back of the church and you see the sun glancing over his shoulder you see the confessional light come on his dad is clearly going to confession his dad comes out of the confessional and at that point he leaves the mafia so my gosh that's the that's the point the hinge on which the whole story turned and it was deleted from the movie so sometimes i wonder whether these are done from ideological for ideological reasons or for artistic reasons. Of course, there's the movie Unbroken with uh, Louis Zamperini. The the book is all about a man's conversion to evangelical Christianity, eventually through Billy Graham, but because of his experiences in World War II and being lost at sea on a raft. And there's even a beautiful scene, kind of the midpoint of the book, where he sees angels singing in the sky, and that changes his experience and it changes his life story and it doesn't happen in the movie even when hollywood is trying to be nice and reach out they treat religious people with a kind of backhanded complimentary contempt of making them banal instead of malevolent right this is the this is when hollywood's feeling generous they make us seem banal and kind of like harmless idiots rather than malevolent bad guys. So what's wrong with saying that religious people aren't normal? Well, first of all, it's not true. There's more religious people than there are people who watch the Super Bowl this year, especially, but even last year. But what this does is it gives our children the false belief that it's odd to be religious because we keep introducing them to a world through movies in which religious people are fringe characters. They're either malevolent or banal. What I do personally, what we've started to do, we've done this off and on over the years, is we've been having Catholic movie night at home where we show our children movies in which religion is a part of people's lives in a very natural way. There's a couple places to find movies uh, like this. One is at Ex Corte. We once did a poll that had thousands of people respond, and we asked, what's your favorite proudly Catholic movie? So we came up with this poll because I was watching Henry V with Kenneth Branagh. And before they went to battle, they all went to confession. And then they crossed themselves and went into battle. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's awesome. I want my sons to see this movie where these action heroes are uh, taking the faith seriously. And suddenly we started to ask, well, what are other movies like this? There's a nice list there. We probably should update it with a new survey at Xcorte. Um, to kind of bring it up to date. But The Passion of the Christ is, of course, number one. You have A Man for All Seasons, which is a great movie. The Sound of Music, which shows religious people who are normal and it's part of their life, and it's not that big of a deal. It's A Wonderful Life. Uh, you have also newer movies like For Greater Glory, which was about the Cristero Revolution. Anyway, there's a quite a number of movies there from the 21st century and before that show you and your children that religious people are not strange. So that mistake was religious people aren't normal. But this one could almost be God is not normal. In many movies, God is odd or he's missing altogether. The real God, the God who made us, the God who created us, the God who's holding everything we see and hear and feel in existence right now is a mystery. It's a crude analogy, but God is both the computer programmer that set our world in motion. He's also the power source that keeps our world in motion. He's also the computer operator who's uh, helping our world along. But what happens is that when movies do mention God, they seem to take one chunk of him, they truncate him down to one of these powers, one of these aspects of his, of his being, Star Wars makes this explicit and literally just calls him the force. He's the electrical current, which is running through the universe, uh, which is fine. That's a, an old, one old understanding of God that's been around for a while, um, the source of ubiquitous energy. Other movies see him just as a shy, retiring figure who only makes his presence felt in kind of weak ways occasionally, You know, the God in Exodus starring Christian Bale is basically appears as a small child that's, you know, any small child who is God is going to be creepy unless you're seeing our Lord himself. And the God is kind of creepy in that movie. It's a good movie. Otherwise, there's really good things about it. Other places that God is sort of this shy, retiring figure might be like my big fat Greek wedding, where the Greek woman wants to marry the man and he's not. Orthodox Christian, so he becomes Orthodox Christian just as an afterthought in order to, it's like one of the steps along with hiring a caterer that you have to do on the way to the wedding. Um, Some movies like The Polar Express uh, believe in God in this vague, odd way where, um, you know, I think the movie posters for that said believe not say what you have to believe in. The actual book says you have to believe in Santa Claus for your bell to ring. But that wasn't made clear in the same way in the movie. You just had to believe in this force, this vague itness that is belief. I don't know. And that's kind of the same God you get in *The Wrinkle in Time, this godishness that is this force in the universe. Although the, it's based on a book that had a very kind of strong Christian worldview. But to the extent that movies win converts to this ambiguous faith, they destroy real faith. Because if God is merely a force, real life offers as much evidence that he's malevolent than that he's benign. Uh, To understand who God really is, you have to understand him as a person. The kind of person who you are angry with or are happy with, but have to reckon with somehow in Castaway, for example, the movie where um, Tom Hanks does an incredible job of being a, um, the lone actor on the screen and yet making it riveting viewing for most of that movie as he's alone on a desert island. Uh, he does lots of things you'd expect somebody to do on a desert island, but he doesn't pray, which is something I would expect somebody to do on a desert island, a human being. This, we naturally do that in every culture we've ever had or to curse God. We do that in every culture that's ever been also, Uh, the God who's stuck you on a desert island. At any rate, you have some kind of um, interaction with divinity that has caused this situation that you find yourself in, either by passive will or malevolent will. In fact, at the end of the movie, when he discovers how much his life has changed and how much he took for granted wasn't true, he takes as his lesson that he will just breathe. That's, his, that's the big takeaway for him from the movie, which is exactly the lesson a fly takes if you hold it underwater long enough and then take it out of the water. <laughs> it has the same attitude. I will just breathe. At any rate, um, there's lots of examples of this mistake that God is odd. Uh, Noah by with Russell Crowe. God is very odd. He's, a, he's like a specific Gnostic God or a specific narrative of God that Gnosticism has told for ages that, that's true in that movie. Uh, but also movies like Coco, the Pixar movie with all the skeletons that dance around and uh, the Day of the Dead, the Mexican Day of the Dead, uh, where which posits this odd God who created this everlasting life where you nonetheless disappear as soon as a family member forgets that you exist. It's a very uh, pagan, old school God. So that, so we get God wrong in movies. We also get love wrong in movies, I think, as a consequence. And the mistake that movies often make about love is that love is about me, not you. So to Catholics, you have John Paul II who says love is a self-gift You have Pope Benedict XVI who said, love is not practiced as a means of achieving other ends. Love is an end in itself. Uh, Mother Teresa says that to love is to sacrifice or her life says that at any rate. St. Thomas Aquinas says, love is willing good to the other. Love is all about what you do for others. It's about dying to yourself. It's about suddenly realizing that you're not the center of the universe, but this other person is gonna be the center of your universe now. But that's not true in the movies. In the movies, I love you isn't about what I give to my beloved. It's about what my beloved will provide me. So one of the classic scenes of, uh, about love in movies is the you had me at hello scene in Jerry Maguire, where Jerry Maguire tells her, you complete me. And this is his statement of love, to which she should have replied, complete yourself, And then come to me when you want to give yourself, right? So Aristotle distinguished different kinds of love that I think, I mean, he's talking about friendship, but I think that they're very relevant and they provide good sort of pegs to look at this mistake in movies today. Uh, Love for pleasure is kind of the most common movie love where you, you say, you please me, therefore I love you. You are attractive, therefore I love you love for utility is the second kind of false love that Aristotle points out. That's where you love somebody for what they can do for you. Right. And I'm always feel funny talking about these because, um, the woman I fell in love with in college was attractive and had a car and both of those things were (laughs) positive (laughs) positives in my case, but, um, that uh, I married her. So it wasn't just for utility or for pleasure, but, um, I think Jane Austen novels don't necessarily fall into this problem. But once you kind of boil them down to the basics of their storyline, they tend to present a world in which an Indian is happy if you marry a rich guy and an Indian is not happy if you don't there's all sorts of reasons baked in the cake for why the people in her novels have to marry a rich person because of the injustices that didn't allow them to inherit money. But it's um, nonetheless true that in Jane Austen movies and in so many others, uh, the happy ending comes because of what the beloved will do to better your life. The Phantom of the Opera is a classic love story of our time, the Andrew Lloyd Webber version. Uh, but both in the movie version and in the play version, it's basically, we're talking about a love of utility, uh, who can help me sing, who can um, get me on stage. Hamilton plays with this trope. Hamilton falls in love with the Schuyler sisters with, in general and then picks a Schuyler sister and it's extremely good for his life that he would be paired with a Schuyler sister. Uh, so, it's acknowledged in the book and it causes problems. It's acknowledged in the movie and it causes problems throughout the story. Uh, but it may, I don't know if it falls into the trap so much of it's commenting on the trap. Another one that's certainly commenting on the trap is um, Knives Out, which explores a number of relationships of utility in a family and how they may have worked into uh, motivations for murder. And then there's True Love. I love you, that love is a mystery, but it means I will serve you no matter what. Princess Bride teaches us lesson with a smile, Um, a beautiful mind teaches it more with a grimace. But understanding what true love looks like is one thing that I think James Cameron movies have mastered. From Titanic to Avatar, you have somebody who, a male figure who is willing to sacrifice himself for a female figure. And audiences loved that, particularly female audiences loved that. When you see Jack in Titanic refuse to get on the raft, even though it looks like there's plenty of room on there, then you're moved to like him more. Um, Anyway, be that as it may, uh, Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver in Marriage Story, which, yes, should be called Divorce Story, tell a cautionary tale about how the wrong kind of love leads to all sorts of problems. And in fact, it seems as if the uh, the mistakes in the relationship that led to the end of the relationship were the fact that one was using the other either for pleasure or utility or both. In fact, I think Marriage Story can kind of tell a tale about each of these mistakes about love that Aristotle points out. Uh, you have the... Um, Love for pleasure, which seems to be the powerful director character played by Adam D- Driver, his attraction to Scarlett Johansson, his attraction in a flirtatious way to other women in his life. Uh, you have the um, friendship of utility, false love in Scarlett Johansson's attraction to him, this powerful director who can help her career. and. Uh, together, these mess up their lives, and I think the case could be made that they mess up a lot of people's lives precisely because Hollywood movies have taught us this false notion of love, where love is, where true love is something that's about me instead of about you. And I would be remiss if I didn't give the example of Apocalypto, Mel Gibson's uh, follow-up to Passion of the Christ, which I think is in every sense a follow-up to Passion of the Christ. I think it shows how the graces of the Passion of Christ were spread worldwide. But it also happens to be a movie which is all about how far one man will go to sacrifice for the love of his life and the child that's on the way, Uh, without spoiling it. uh, It's really violent. It's not for everybody, Uh, but it's... uh, very uh, moving when you think of it in terms of what real love looks like. And real love is about you, not me. Uh, Which brings me to another mistake, which is that immorality is the key to happiness. This is kind of a mistake that draws from misunderstandings about God, draws from misunderstandings about the human person, about how we treat one another as somebody to be used. Immorality is the key to happiness or Another way I've put it is good is bad and bad is good. Uh, And the example I always use in class is um, that my children are allowed to watch lots of stuff that their friends aren't allowed to watch because our rule of thumb is if they're going to imitate it, they don't get to watch it. If they're not going to imitate it, I'm not that worried about it. So for instance, they've never watched, they've watched movies with profanity in it if the profanity is not very imitatable. they've never watched Die Hard because the profanity is very imitatable in that movie. Um, But one movie they've never watched is Little Mermaid. Now, why is that? Because uh, we don't want to show them immorality is the key to happiness movies. So we're fine with movies in which immorality occurs where people break commandments. What we don't want them to see are where people breaking a commandment is their key to happiness. Breaking the commandment is what gets them what they want. So in the Little Mermaid story that you read by Hans Christian Andersen, the Little Mermaid disobeys her father and follows her love. And she finds that she is able to become a human being who can walk, but it's so painful to her. She's in excruciating agony when she does follow, disobey her father and follow her dream. And she eventually turns to sea foam. So it is not a happy ending. Disobeying your father and disobeying what you should be doing is not a happy ending. In the movie, it is a happy ending. She disobeys her father, goes to Ursula the witch, and thereby finds happiness. So, you know, there's also School of Rock, which is a movie where lots of kids disobey their parents and thereby find happiness. For some reason, my kids are allowed to watch this. That's, there's a little bit of an incongruity there. Um, but I think we've doubled down so hard on Little Mermaid. Maybe that's why. But I know that my girls, uh, when they've come to college, one of the first things they've done is watch Little Mermaid as kind of a transgressive act. So maybe that's a key to parenting. If you can make watching The Little Mermaid a transgressive act, then you've put the bar of rebellion low enough that, um, that I mean, okay, maybe that wouldn't work long-term. At any rate, uh, that's one way this immorality is the key to happiness trope works. Others are movies that say sexual immorality is the key to happiness. So love actually, which is not about love actually, is a uh, great example of this where um, there's all these love stories and most of them are not real love stories and several of them are stories about sexual immorality. There's the classic Meryl Streep, Clint Eastwood movie, The Bridges of Madison County, which was a very cheesy movie that did very well but is very wrong in this respect. It's all about an adulterous relationship. The Breakfast Club, any 80s movie that you rewatch in the 21st century is more cringy than you recall from a moral perspective. And Breakfast Club is no, um, is no different. At the end of Breakfast Club, there's this strong suggestion that the Molly Ringwald character and the Judd Nelson character meet up in an inappropriate way. And also in a way that kind of ruins my respect for both the characters really. There's also Revenge is Sweet movies, which are about immorality being the key to happiness, such as most uh, Mel Gibson movies, from Ransom on, right? Um, Also, the first Godfather movie. The second Godfather movie fixes this because it's a crime does not pay movie. And crime does not pay movies are the antidote to these. So ultimately, the problem with this mistake is that it tells you lies about what will happen in your life if you spend it doing wrong. You know, God's Ten Commandments are not arbitrary rules that got that God set up to kill fun in people. They're kind of a user's guide to living. Uh, they're kind of warning you if you do this bad thing, you will hurt yourself. Um, so, people who commit adultery hurt themselves. People who obsess about revenge hurt themselves. People who break the law hurt themselves uh, irreparably forever, for years at any rate, sometimes. So why talk about mistakes movies make? Like I wanted to stress last time, I'm not trying to ban movies. What I'm trying to change is our attitude toward movies. And in fact, if you look at movies just by counting bad words and counting Acts of violence, uh, you will not, um, you'll miss some great movies and you'll watch some terrible movies. Uh, I always use examples in class. There was a made for TV movie called Spring Break Shark Attack, which was a made for TV movie and didn't have all that immoral content in it. But the only reason you watch that is to see acts of violence and spring break activities. Whereas a movie like Schindler's List, probably has more violence and more nudity than that movie, but it's a movie you shouldn't miss because it tells you something about the human person and man's inhumanity to man. So it's important that Catholics understand sort of what our approach to movies should be. There's basically been three Catholic attitudes toward movies uh, since they existed. I call them the command and control mentality, the victim mentality and the missionary mentality. The command and control mentality is kind of the days of the Legion of Decency, which literally they said, if you show a movie we don't like, we will stop going to your theater. And it totally changed the way Hollywood, the kinds of movies Hollywood was producing. It killed the career of Mae West, for instance. Then there was the Hayes Code, which actually had some really good things about it and actually had some really terrible things about it. But uh, it was run by Ignatius Breen, Joseph Ignatius Breen, who um, kind of had an iron hand that would stop movies from doing things he didn't like. And the problem is that as soon as these, as soon as the church lost control, people just went haywire. And you'll find that this happens if you micromanage your kids or people in your office. If you tell them what to do at every moment when you are not present, they will go haywire. Um, so that didn't work in the long run. Then we've been suffering from the victim mentality, where you say boo hoo, Hollywood beats up on Catholics. They don't have any uh, movies that show us as good guys. Boo-hoo, wah-wah. The reason I mock that as boohoo, wah-wah, is that the third mentality is the missionary mentality. And that's where you say, okay, they don't have good movies for Catholics, so I'll go become part of the movie-making world. And make good movies for Catholics or make good movies that say true things about the human person. If Catholic movies do well, Catholics ask, why doesn't Hollywood make more Catholic movies? Well, that's a little bit like asking if books by saints sell so well, why don't the people at book corporations become more like saints, right? It doesn't work that way. What happens is that saints live a life and express it in a book which then sells well because it says true things. And that's how it works in Hollywood also people who have true things to say and have experienced it, create works of art that they then bring to the larger public. Uh, I love what uh, Barbara Nicolosi, who's been on campus a couple of times says about this. She had started act one writing for Hollywood back in the day. Uh, She said, how could religious people change Hollywood? And she said, give away everything you have and are now doing so that you can throw yourself into the mastery of the art form. Go to a top film school, study philosophy and theology so you'll have something real to say. Read lots of classic novels and write a 1,000 pages so you can achieve command of the language as a creative tool. Get your spiritual and moral act together. Then come follow us by moving to Los Angeles, and in 10 or 15 years, maybe you'll see your name on the screen appended to a movie of lasting value. That's the attitude that Catholics have to have. So this is so worth it that we're going to embrace it and do, not just do a film that hits the right buttons that we think need to be hit, but really understand the art form from the inside out and create something of lasting value. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Hoops, and this is the Catholic Living Podcast, produced by Ex Cordae at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Our mission is to produce media that will transform culture in America through Benedictine's mission of community, faith, and scholarship. Visit us at xcorde.org.